Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. He's the new kid in town, and the music's on his side. Pictures presents Footloose. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Footloose from 1984. Now, this is a very special episode because it's the first crossover episode I've ever done, and it's with our friends from the Grown Up Rock podcast, Sonny Pooney and Stephen Michael. They approached me to do this kind of crossover where we could talk about a soundtrack on their podcast, and then we'll talk about the movie on my podcast. It's perfect. So I'm going to, of course, release my episode first. It's always on a Friday. And then two days later on a Sunday, you'll be able to download our discussion about the Footloose soundtrack. However, if you download this weeks or months afterwards or even years, uh, they're both available at the same time. So if you've already listened to Damn Good Movie Memories, the Footloose movie version, then you should go over to the Growing Up Rock podcast, wherever you download your podcast, and then download the Footloose episode. It's a lot of fun and a great idea from the Growing Up Rock guys. All right, now for the movie. So, of course, the studio was Paramount Pictures. The release date was February 17th, 1984, with a running time of 107 minutes. The rating was PG. The budget was $8.2 million, and the box office was an absolute smash, making $80 million, making it the seventh-ranked movie of 1984. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 52% rotten from 42 reviews. Their critics' consensus is there's not much dancing, but when there is, it's great. The rest of the time, Footloose is a nice hunk of trashy teenager cheese. I think Roger Ebert was one of those negative reviews because at the time... He gave Footloose one and a half out of four stars. And I'm going to give you an abbreviated review because it's my job to give you the plot points. So we'll, we'll just give you the overview of what Ebert said. He said, Footloose is a seriously confused movie that tries to do three things and does all of them badly. It wants to tell the story of a conflict in a town. It wants to introduce some flashy teenage characters. And part of the time, it wants to be a music video. It's possible that no movie with this many agendas can be good. Maybe somebody should have decided early on exactly what the movie was supposed to be about. Now, the basic conflict in this movie was not new when the Beach Party gang discovered it years ago. Remember Annette and Frankie trying to persuade the old folks to let them hold a dance at the beach? 
If the movie had only relaxed and allowed itself to admit how silly the situation is, it could have been more fun. Instead, it gets bogged down by the peculiar personality of the preacher, who is played by John Lithgow as a man of agonizing complexity. Footloose makes one huge, inexplicable error with the Lithgow character. It sets him up as an unyielding reactionary, and then lets him change his mind 100 degrees without a word of explanation. Now, I mentioned the flashy teenage characters. The one that gave me the most trouble was the preacher's daughter. She enjoys suicidal games of chicken, like balancing with her legs on doors of a speeding car and a speeding truck while a speeding semi bears down on her. This trick is, of course, impossible to do in real life, and so it simultaneously makes her into an idiot and a stunt woman. As for the music video scenes, on three different occasions, the movie switches gears and goes into pre-packaged MTV-type production numbers, with the fancy photography and the flashy quick cuts. These scenes may have played well on TV, but they break what little reality the story has, and expose Footloose as a collection of unrelated ingredients that someone thought would be exploitable. And that's the end of Ebert's review. Now look, I, the movie wasn't made for middle-aged men like Roger Ebert, and his disdain is sort of expected. This was a product of the MTV generation, and I will cover this phenomena a bit later, and we do talk about it on the Growing Up Rock podcast. Now, I didn't see Footloose in the theater, so I was too young. So my first exposure to the film was the soundtrack that my mom purchased on cassette. And I remember many a drive in the family truckster, which was the Dodge Caravan, listening to the soundtrack over and over. And again, we will discuss specifically track by track the soundtrack on the Growing Up Rock podcast. Now, eventually I saw the movie on home video, and even at a young age, I was incredulous about the plot of the film. I was kind of like, what? They can't dance in this town? This is ridiculous. And again, more, more about this later, because I wasn't alone on this premise. Eventually, I would just suspend disbelief and enjoy the movie for what it was. And to amuse myself, my parents, and whoever happened to be around when the movie was on, I would do the Kevin Bacon dance. That occurred at the final dance scene during the song Footloose, and you can watch the final dance scene and you'll know what I'm talking about. Alright, the main cast. Now, I'm going to go into depth about the main cast during the making of the film portion, so I'll skip the actors and specifically talk about the director, Herbert Ross. Now, Ross was well-known and a respected director by the time Footloose was made. His directorial career began in the late 1960s with a musical remake of Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and he would go on to have many hits in the 1970s with movies like The Owl and the Pussycat, T.R. Baskin, Play It Again, Sam, The Last of Sheila, Funny Lady, The Sunshine Boys, and The Turning Point. At the time, Footloose would be his most successful film. But surprisingly, it was surpassed with the movie The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox and then Steel Magnolias. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So songwriter Dean Pitchford went to producer Craig Zayden with his exciting idea of a movie musical. Now, Pitchford had been very successful after writing many of the musical numbers in the film version of Fame in 1980. Now, Pitchford had read a newspaper article about a small town in Oklahoma called Elmore City. Now, in the late 19th century, a law was created that forbade dancing of any kind in the town. And here it was in the late 1970s and the early 80s, and the law was still on the books, but nobody really knew what caused the law to be written in the first place. But, just like the movie, the kids in Elmore City wanted to have a prom, but of course the law was still on the books. So the kids had to go to the school board, then the city council, to plead their case. And both boards voted in favor of having the prom. 
What was interesting is that the school and the city itself didn't really have a major issue with allowing the dance. But of course, the churches and the clergy did. What a shocker. But even without the full blessing of the church, the dance happened without incident and created a bit of press nationally. And at the dance, the students were hesitant at first. But after the junior class president went on the floor with his dance partner, it broke the ice and it was a great time all around, just like the movie. And as crazy as it seemed, Pitchford and the producers ended up researching and discovering there were a number of cities in the U.S. that were just like Elmore City that banned dancing and organized proms. It was completely bizarre to them. So after reading this article, Pitchford traveled to Elmore City to research the town and the churches and the schools to help him better write his eventual script called Cheek to Cheek. Now, what's interesting is just like I thought when I first saw the film, the producers were afraid that nobody would actually believe this premise. I mean, what places in the 1980s would actually ban dancing in the United States? It would seem ridiculous. And it took over three years to keep the studios interested in this little story. Director Herbert Ross actually approached the producers about the script, which shocked them because they didn't feel it was a big enough project for such an established director like Herbert Ross. However, what they didn't realize was that Ross started his career as a choreographer before becoming a director, and he loved the script, and he was eager to work on a film with up-and-coming actors. Interestingly enough, Ross left Footloose for a few months to try to film a movie called Mermaid with Warren Beatty. Now, this was also around the time that Splash with Tom Hanks was being made. So that Mermaid project fell through, and Ross came back to work on Footloose. Another director named Michael Cimino had been brought in during the hiatus and wanted to rework everything. But that wasn't the vision that the producers and Dean Pitchford wanted. Tom Cruise was the first choice to play the lead character of Wren, but he had bulked up for the film All the Right Moves, which was a football movie. And even though he danced pretty well in Risky Business, the producers didn't feel he was right for the film. Rob Lowe then came into audition and ended up popping his knee out while dancing, and he needed an ambulance. And there went that idea with Rob Lowe. Now, Kevin Bacon's career of acting began off-Broadway, and his film debut was Animal House. You know, thank you, sir, may I have another? And then his next film was the original Friday the 13th, and then he was in Diner. After Diner, Bacon's agent called him and told him that he had an audition lined up for a film. But the catch was that Bacon had to take dancing classes before the audition. So after reading the initial script, he was sort of surprised by the dance angle, since he thought it was simply a fish-out-of-water tale. Finally, after a few callbacks, everyone wanted Bacon in the lead role. The writer, the director, the producer, but not the studio. So Don Steele, who was head of Paramount Pictures, just didn't see him as a leading man, but more of a character actor, and she didn't think he was attractive enough to be on screen. So the producers had Bacon do a screen test for multiple scenes in the script. And it was a very professional-looking test. His hair and makeup was done perfectly. His haircut alone at the time cost (laughs) $1,500. The complicated part about taking the time to do the screen test is that Bacon was offered the lead in a Stephen King movie called Christine. So Bacon was very hesitant about potentially turning down a surefire role for a screen test that may not pan out. However, the producers convinced him that Footloose was truly the role that could make him a star, not Christine. Ultimately, they were totally right, but it was a very difficult decision for Bacon. Because financially, he needed the money, because he was just a struggling actor at the time. Before showing the screen test, Herbert Ross said if the studio didn't decide to cast Bacon as the lead, that he would simply walk off the picture and take another movie. I think the producers realized the fate of Footloose came down to this one screening to the studio. So the executives from the studio watched about a minute of the test, 
said how great Bacon was, and that was it. And by the way, his hairstyle at the time was based on Sting's look. The police were huge at the time, and the actress that worked with Kevin Bacon in the screen test was Haviland Morris. You might remember her when she played Caroline in Sixteen Candles. She was Jake Ryan's blonde girlfriend in the beginning. So Footloose was filmed in Provo and Ogden, Utah, which were both very conservative towns. So life was sort of imitating art in many ways. Herbert Ross wanted Utah for the perfect scenery. Kevin Bacon at the time was 24, and he convinced the studios to enroll him in the local high school so he could research and get a feel of what high school was like, because at that point, he was now seven years removed. And similar to the movie, there was this big kid at school that sort of took him under his wing to prevent him from getting pounded from all the corn-fed locals who didn't know who Kevin Bacon was at all. They just thought he was some new kid from out of town with a fancy haircut and he was wearing a tie. Lynn Taylor Corbett, who was the choreographer on the film, was really inventive in the way she created dance moves for each character. She would ask each actor how they normally danced and what sort of moves were natural to them. She would then create a unique routine for each actor, which is very cool. For example, with Chris Penn, all he knew how to do was wrestle. He could not dance at all, just like his character. So Corbett took those wrestling moves and implemented them into his routines. It's very brilliant. Sarah Jessica Parker was just on hiatus from the TV show Square Pegs, which ended after the first season, and then she was informed by her agent that she was cast as Rusty in Footloose, and they asked her if she would cut her hair short and dye it red. After she had just grown out her hair, she didn't want to do that, so she just passed on the role, and her friend Tracy Nelson, who was also in Square Pegs, was then cast as Rusty. But after the first two to three days of initial shooting in Utah, Tracy Nelson was going through some personal problems, and it just wasn't working out for her, and she left the film. So the producers called and asked if Sarah Jessica Parker would fly out to Utah from New York the next day and shoot for Rusty. And she didn't even have to cut her hair. Again, much like in the film, Chris Penn was a wallflower in real life. He never danced, never wanted to dance. It was Chris Penn's father that read the script and said it would be perfect for Chris. And there was kind of a sly genius behind this move by Chris's father as he wanted him to take the role before reading it because he knew his son might turn down the part if he knew it was about dancing. The casting director, Marcy Learoff, liked Chris Penn in all the right moves in that he had a sort of a bull in the china shop sense about him. And his charisma changed the character of Willard because Dean Pitchford later admitted the way he wrote Willard originally was sort of bland. Pitchford essentially rewrote the whole character after Penn was cast. Now, the first rehearsal, Penn came in totally unprepared, dressed in jeans and combat boots, not realizing he'd have to be getting ready to do some dancing. He was totally Willard. But just like the film, he put in tons of work into what the role called for. And according to Bacon and Parker, he was very similar in real life to Willard. And Parker and Penn actually fell for each other and dated for a while off screen. So Penn was hired on the spot, and the other actor hired on the spot with John Lithgow who was at the peak of his career film-wise at the time. He was in Blowout, The World According to Garp, the Twilight Zone movie, in Terms of Endearment. Lithgow and Diane Wiest had also worked together in a play years prior to Footloose, coincidentally enough. Wiest was just starting her film career at this point, but she went on to have many memorable roles throughout the 1980s and 90s, and is a great actress. Lori Singer was full of energy and very much like her character of Ariel, plus very tall at 5'10". Of all the actors, Singer was the most enthusiastic dancer. She just loved to dance, with Michael Jackson being her favorite artist of all time. Dean Pitchford knew of Singer because she was on the TV adaptation of Fame, 
and was initially hired on that show because she was an established cello player. Footloose was her film debut. Now, they almost hired Jennifer Jason Lee before Laurie Singer auditioned. All of the scenes were rehearsed for three months prior to shooting and pretty much done in order to sort of live the scenes and grow, just like in the film. Okay, let's get into the movie. So it begins with an upbeat tone with one of the most popular songs from the 1980s, Kenny Loggins' Footloose, as we see the feet of different people dancing to the song. It's very 80s and really fun to watch. Now, what's fascinating about this scene is it wasn't in the original script. The opening credits were just going to be a standard opening. But the producers realized they wouldn't have actual dancing then until almost 20 minutes into the film. And that would be a problem if the main premise behind the film is dancing. So the iconic opening scene was added and was a stroke of genius because dozens of dancers were brought in just to shoot this scene. Also, the dancer with the gold shoes was Kenny Loggins himself. We then cut to this small town named Beaumont, which is a fictional Midwestern town. From the delight of the opening dancing scene, we are immediately transported into the fire and brimstone sermon of Reverend Shaw Moore. That's John Lithgow. And though I didn't realize this until I did the Pollyanna episode a few months ago, the Lithgow character in Footloose, especially the fiery sermons, are likely inspired by the Reverend played by Carl Malden. So go back and watch that 1960 film to see the comparisons. And he is testing us. Every, every day, our Lord is testing us. If he wasn't testing us, how would you account for the sorry state of our society? For the crimes that plague the big cities of this country? When he could sweep this pestilence from the face of the earth with one mighty gesture of his hand? If our Lord wasn't testing us, how would you account for the proliferation these days of this obscene, Rock and roll music, with its gospel of easy sexuality and relaxed morality. If our Lord wasn't testing us, why, he could take all these pornographic books and albums and turn them into one big fiery cinder-like planet. But how would that make us stronger for him? It's at that point that I'd be running for the hills from this town to avoid this sort of nonsense. But in any case, Lithgow plays this character perfectly. There's a quick shot of a little boy fast asleep during the sermon, which wasn't faked. The kid really was bored and fell asleep. While this ridiculous but frankly entertaining spectacle is going on, Ren McCormick, who is Kevin Bacon, and his mom Ethel, played by Francis Lee McLean, are sitting in the audience. Ren especially is rolling his eyes with Reverend Moore's diatribe. However, he does catch the eye of a few girls across in the aisle, them being Rusty, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Ariel, Laurie's singer. After church, Ren meets Ariel, who also happens to be the daughter of Reverend Moore. As it turns out, as uptight and conservative as her father may be, Ariel is the polar opposite, as we discover very quickly. I will. I will. You have a good week we'll now. See. Bye-bye, Ellen. Mrs. McCormick. <laughs> Your sister has us so excited about you coming. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Did you meet my wife, Vi? No. How do you do? How nice to meet you. Thank Welcome. You. This is my son, Ren. Hello, Ren. Would you yes. excuse me, so, uh, so <laughs> Daddy? Oh, Ariel, will you come and meet the McCormicks? You have a stunning new gentleman. This is uh, Mrs. McCormick and uh-huh. her son, is it Ren? Ren. <laughs> Ren's going to be new at the high school tomorrow. Hi. 
Daddy, me, Edna, Wendy, Joe, and Rusty are going down for a soda at the high spot, okay? Well, okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. Ari, Ari, remember, you have school tomorrow. I'll be home for supper. So, have you seen the new high school? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Oh, my God, I almost forgot. Cindy Addis had her baby. What was it? Who told you? Who told you? Yesterday, my mother smoked her. Oh, my. Is she coming back for graduation? I don't feel a bit sorry for her. You can't buy a diaphragm for the mail. I'm serious. Well, did she decide who the father was? There's no question. It was Dwayne Capps. And wait a minute. I've been going with Dwayne Capps. He never had the time. Well, how long does it take, Winnie Joe? Ladies and gentlemen, and moving up behind us, you'll notice the incredible barf mobile crowd. Hi, girls. Going my way. You lonely tonight? Oh, you want to race? You gotta race. What? That piece of junk? Come on, I'll take you all on, girl. You first, honey. Come on. Come on, Jack. Come on. What are you doing? Come on. And the slow down, okay, please? Throw it, honey. Throw it. Come on, I'll get closer. Come on, you can do it, honey. Grab it. Hold on to it. So, Ariel's basically insane with a death wish. <laughs> more on that later. Once I started to get more into hard rock, I noticed that Chuck, played by Jim Youngs, who was the one who had the truck that Ariel was balancing on, looks a lot like a very young David Coverdale from Whitesnake. Now, originally, Dean Pitchford wrote the highway scene as being shot in the nighttime. However, director Herbert Ross changed it to day because you wouldn't have been able to see any of the great scenery going on in the background at night. And he was absolutely correct. So we go back to Ren and his mom. Reverend Moore and some other parents are asking Ren uh, some questions about his school life prior to moving to Beaumont. 
Now, Ren was originally living in Chicago, and he quickly discovers that certain books that were deemed classics, like Slaughterhouse-Five, written by Kurt Vonnegut, are examples of books that are up for being banned in Beaumont. Ren and Ethel are staying with his aunt and uncle for the time being, and the aunt and uncle pretty much follow the same nonsense preached by Reverend Moore. So that night, Errol and Chuck appear at the local diner drive-in, and this is where the film turns into essentially a music video. And as you will find out, or as you already know if you've seen the movie, the, the film is essentially broken up into montages, which are basically music videos, and that's sort of the charm of the film, much like Flashdance, which was released a year prior. In this case, we hear Shalimar's dancing in the sheets on a cassette boombox outside the diner. And it's all fun and games until the town's party animal, Reverend Moore, shows up unexpectedly. Your mother didn't think you had any money with you. The next morning, Ren gets ready for school looking like, as his mom puts it, David Bowie <laughs> with a skinny tie. He, t- he pulls up in his yellow VW Bug, blasting metal health from Quiet Riot. And I always loved this scene because it was the first time I heard Quiet Riot as a kid. Thank you to end credits for telling me this. And the rest of the kids in the school parking lot look at him like he's an alien because Ren doesn't know yet that blasting music is very frowned upon in Beaumont. Ren walks into school and bumps into a very large fellow named Willard. That's Chris Penn. At first, you might think that Ren is going to get his ass kicked by Willard, but Ren makes him laugh and the two introduce themselves for what eventually turns into a nice little friendship. He also runs into Ariel and Rusty. Ren ends up having lunch with Willard, and the two talk about the differences between Chicago and Beaumont, specifically the clubs and the women. <laughs> this was the best. Ginger? Now listen, we started dancing, right? Slow dancing, like we were stuck to each other. Now eventually it's obvious to me that she wants to do more than dance, right? So we left the place. On the way to the car, she's already got her tongue in my ear, right? <laughs> we get to the car. She says we can't go back to her place because of her roommate, right? But she says, hey, that's no problem. She's got these seats in the car that recline back. All the way back, if you know what I'm saying. All the way? Well, I should, you. <laughs> right? She rips my shirt open. She's clawing my chest. She, she's, she's biting my neck. And I'm, I'm trying to get over the stick ship because we're going like a freaking freight train now. All of a sudden, she starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Oh, God! Oh, God! Don't stop! Don't stop! Make ginger pop! Oh, shit, really? No. Yeah, but we did dance. We danced our asses off. So Ren and Willard then get invited over to sit with Rusty and her friends. We then discover the reason why dancing, yes, dancing, was banned in Beaumont. Long story short, a group of kids five years prior were killed in a car accident after drinking, dancing, and playing loud music. And the leader of this ridiculous banishment was none other than Reverend Moore. We'll find out later why in the film. There's a funny scene where Ren is gassing up his car, and as they're about to leave the station, Ren grabs a cassette from the glove department, and Willard nonchalantly asks if Ren is rich. And Ren chuckles and asks why. Well, it's because he's got a lot of tapes. <laughs> the lightheartedness quickly ends when Ren is pulled over by a cop for playing his music too loud. 
Well, what about the police? What about them? You heard them? No, but I've seen them. What, a concert? No, behind you. What? Oh, shit. So Ren's brand new Quiet Riot tape is confiscated, and he gets a $25 fine. So as you are seeing, life in Beaumont is certainly different than Chicago. That night, Ariel apologizes to her father for the drive-in incident and tries to question him about why it's okay for him to listen to classical music, like when he's working, but other music isn't allowed. His lame answer is typical of someone who doesn't really have any answers, and that is, classical music is uplifting and doesn't confuse people. Which is ironic, considering listening to religious sermons is the epitome of confusion, because they are always up for interpretation. In any case, Errol doesn't feel she can talk to her father in any meaningful way. The next day at school, Ren runs into Ariel's boyfriend, Chuck, in the parking lot while Ren is pulling out. Chuck gives Ren some shit about the tie he wore earlier in the week and calls him a pansy. Ren quickly retorts that he thought only assholes still use the word pansy. Chuck leaves pissed off for being embarrassed by the new kid. Later that day, Ren gets himself a job at the local flour and grain mill run by Andy Bemis, played by Timothy Scott. Ren also gets a visit from Ariel, who informs him that he's to meet Chuck out by his father's field the next day for some sort of showdown. It's like the Old West. With tractors? Well, how hard could it be, right? Just like a car, it's easy. Just like driving a sports car. Nothing could be simpler. Oh, hell, Ren, just remember, stay calm. Calm. Calm, he's I've never driven a tractor before. It's easy, look. This is your clutch. You got gas, your clutch down here. Your brake. Your gas and your brake. You start off, just shift it in the high. Start off, you want to shift it in the high. Don't worry about it. Put it in the third. third. Once you get Stick going, slam it in the third. Once you get going, slam it in Put it in okay? the fourth. That's your emergency brake. These operate your bucket. Don't mess your with the harvester. buckets. Yeah, I'll bet he's scared shitless. He turns out in ten seconds. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Watch. Whoa! Well, hey, Chuck, you sure you're up to this? <laughs> well, this side you want anyway, honey. Yeah, lots of smoke. Tell me I had enough to smoke. I didn't say you had enough to smoke. I said you had a lot to smoke. Well, don't tell me that either. You go tell Dogface we're ready to go. Yeah, all right, let's do it. Okay, I'll catch you later. Okay, come on, man. Ren, just remember he's chicken shit. Just hang in there. You're gonna be great. Just hope God he pulls out. Yeah, because then I want to split his face open. Oh, cool, Tarzan. Give him hell, Ren. Get him, Ren. Come on, Ren. How did I get myself into this? Hey, hey Woody. Woody, come here. Listen, uh, has anybody ever died doing this? Just once. Hey, Ren! Hey, sport! When this hat flies in the air, you better have your button gear. Get her. I got my fingers crossed, buddy. Come on! Come on! We then get another great music video type scene slash montage with Bonnie Tyler's holding out for a hero playing, which is 
A perfectly high-energy song for the scene. Ren, of course, wins the game of Tractor Chicken by luck because his shoelaces get tangled on the gas pedal, so if he wanted to bail, he couldn't. Lucky him, while Chuck had to jump from his tractor and ended up in the river. And like a typical teenager, magically, Ariel is suddenly now more attracted to Ren since he won the race and is the new bad boy in town and replaces the small-town boring bad boy Chuck. So whenever you hear the term daddy issues, the character of Ariel is a prime example of this. Hello. Tell me. Okay, he has team practice every day until 4. On Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, he works at the Bemis Mill till 6. Whoops, you already knew that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, he hasn't dated since he's been in town. And late Friday nights. Yeah? By the light of the full moon. He, uh breaks into churchyards and bites the heads off live chickens. <laughs> Come on, Ariel, what is it, Chuck? Look, I never did think he had all his dogs barking anyway. Besides, what is wrong about getting a little psyched over Wren? He's cute. He's from out of town, and don't tell me that doesn't curl your toes, Ariel. I know you too well. You went out of here so bad, you probably memorized bus schedules. And you don't? So even though Wren stood up for himself, over Chuck and has a now a nice group of friends, the majority of the town aren't thrilled with the new kid. And one of Chuck's cronies decides to try to plant a joint on him and get him busted by the teacher. Wren decides to flush the joint, which gets him out of trouble temporarily. Wren's uncle confronts Wren at home, and Wren doesn't appreciate that he's not given the benefit of the doubt. We never really know what exactly happened to Wren's father we get kind of a glimpse in this brief conversation with his uncle, and I can only assume he either left the family or died. Come to find out later in the film, he did leave Ethel. In any case, Ren is frustrated and pissed off of what's been going on in the short amount of time, and we get another music video montage when we get to see Ren's gymnastic and dancing skills in all their glory and in an abandoned warehouse while moving pictures never plays. Hey, asshole. Interested in some really good shit? Oh my god, Rich, you sly little shit. You just made a whole sentence. Don't get smart ass. I've been watching you these past couple weeks. I know you're not stupid. And uh, I've got a friend here who can help you out from time to time. Oh, no, no. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, but i got my own sources. You know, I've been getting into hog tranquilizers. What do you say we just call this a sample and you know where you can get some more? No, 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 wait. Rich, 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 hold up, man. Look, look, I, I don't want your well, shit. Why don't I just take it? You know, you're taking some real chances being new in the school. Mr. Griggs, i got to show you some. Wait, this you is Tim. This is Tim. Come back, y'all. Please, you are. What's that? You think I'd do that with a real joint? Do you know what an OZ is going for these days? I'm going to get you. You wait. The Reverend was right about you. Seems that a bunch of kids was raising some hell out of Burlington Cranston's property a few days back. Tore up the fields, turned over a tractor and everything. Today, someone suggested to me there's been some trouble up at the high school. I think it was drugs. You wouldn't know anything about that. What'd you say? I can't hear you. He said no. Amy. I said no, sir. Well, you know, Ren, whenever we used to call up to your folks there in Chicago, I don't think there was any trouble back there, was there? And I don't know what to make of it, but it seems a lot of people are pointing a finger in your direction lately. And what are they saying? 
what I have been telling you about the trouble and the drugs and... You just seem to be having a lot of trouble since you moved here. And I figured... You figured where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Usually works like that. Now look, Rand. You know that I would never try to take the place of your father. Yeah, well, there's no chance of that. Rand. Uh-oh, he's taking the car. Now, Kevin Bacon said that the never dance scene was very challenging for him physically and mentally. The mental part being that he didn't like that there were so many stunt people dressed like him for the scene. He wanted to try to do as many stunts as possible to avoid being labeled like Jennifer Beals in Flashdance because her role was notorious for using doubles throughout the film, including one double that was actually male. But let's face it, the never sequence were pretty elaborate stunts and over five different doubles were used for various gymnastic moves. Dean Pitchford originally wrote the warehouse scene to be on a basketball court, interestingly enough, but Herbert Ross thought the notion of him easing into dancing on a basketball court just wouldn't work, and needed to be full bore like the warehouse scene. After his impressive gymnastics display, Ariel shows up and surprises Ren. How come you don't like me? What makes you think I don't like look, you? You never talk to me at school. You never look at me. Yeah, well, maybe that's because if I did, your boyfriend would remove my lungs with a spoon. <laughs> Chuck Cranston doesn't owe me. I'm sure he likes to act like he does, but he doesn't. Do you want to kiss me? Someday. Hey, what is this someday shit? Well, I, I get the feeling you've been kissed a lot. You know, I'm afraid I'd suffer by comparison. Ren thinks Ariel is a small town, but she has dreams of getting out of Beaumont and going to college. Ariel then takes Ren to a yard which has non-operating trains, and one train in particular is filled with writings on the wall of book passages and original poems that have been banned by the town. And we could also see Ariel's death wish obsession again. Sometimes after football games, we come out here, just a few of us, and we stand here. And then when the train comes, you make out like crazy. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Most of the time, we just stand and scream. Great. Yeah, I saw it in a movie once. Real loud. From here. Uh! <laughs> <laughs> Come on, don't screw around, huh?
Come on, I'll take you home. Ren pushes Ariel out of the way right as the train is about to hit her. Ren then takes Ariel home. The next day, there's a fallout from Ren hanging out with Ariel as he's been kicked off the gymnastics team. You know what it is, partner? You got an attitude problem. Oh, I got an attitude yes. problem? Yes. And I'm not the only one who's noticed it, Ren. I mean, we're not living in the goddamn Middle Ages here. We got TV. We got Family Feud. We're not stuck in Leave it to Beaverland here. Yeah, well, I haven't noticed a wet t-shirt contest in town yet. Yeah, well, I haven't either. But I'm waiting, patiently. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'd like to do, man. I'd like to glue a Playboy centerfold inside every one of Reverend Moore's hymnals. Yeah, you know what else we could do? We could, we could start one of your nightclubs right there in the church, huh? <laughs> hey, that's it. That's it, man. What? What's it? A dance. What? A dance! We could have a dance! You know a dance? You know dance? Hey, you know on. what I mean? Dance! Hey, rap, come on, dance. You're gonna get me angry, man! We're gonna turn come this town upside down! Stop it! Of course, with any small town, word spreads quickly about the dance Ren is trying to organize. But in the meantime, Ariel, Ren, Rusty, and Willard sneak out that evening to go across city lines to go to a country bar in order to go dancing. Now, this is another memorable scene where we get a couple of songs that were not on the original soundtrack. You get Hurt So Good by John Cougar Mellencamp, and you also get Waiting for a Girl Like You from Foreigner. Now, at this country bar, Ren and Ariel are totally in their element. They're having an absolute blast. Unfortunately for Rusty, Willard simply just can't dance and doesn't even attempt, much to Rusty's chagrin. She finally can't help herself and ends up on the dance floor once the song Footloose comes on. Sarah Jessica Parker is so great in this scene. You can't help but smile because you've got all this enthusiasm and, and bounciness. Of course, Willard gets jealous and ends up in a fight, which doesn't end up well for him. So Willard's nose and pride are busted, but he recovers quickly. On the way home, we find out the main reason why dancing was banned in Beaumont. The accident we were told about earlier in the film had one key victim. Ariel's brother Bobby was killed in the accident. And because of that, her father went on a rampage, banning everything he felt was harming the youth in town, including music and dancing. The next day, Reverend Moore confronts Ariel about where she was the night before. Ariel doesn't tell him and gets a bit sassy, and he slaps her. He's immediately remorseful, but the damage is done. We finally get a great scene with Ariel's mother, Vi, Diane Weist, who has a heart-to-heart -heart with her husband. She sees things clearly about what's going on with her daughter. And she also realizes that Ariel and her husband are very much alike. They're stubborn, both thinking they are right. In the meantime, Ren continues his attempts to try to drum up support for his dance in town. However, it's an uphill battle since he'll have to convince the city council to approve the dance and also change the law on the books. In addition, Ren makes it his mission to teach Willard how to dance. This is another fun montage with the hit song Let's Hear It For The Boy from Denise Williams playing. If I gotta get up in front of that council, then you are gonna learn how to dance.
and in a three-minute montage, Willard goes from a rhythmless oaf to a dancing superstar. You gotta love movies, especially in the 80s. Also, Somebody's Eyes, which was on the soundtrack, was the original choice for the Willard dancing montage. But once Let's Hear It For The Boy was written, they knew that was the song it needed to be. The fun quickly fades and we get the most disturbing scene in the film when Chuck confronts Ariel for avoiding him. This is the scene where my coworker Lindley, and also frequent guest on Damn Good Movie Memories, and I were watching the movie on Movie Friday we used to do in the office when we were actually in the office a few years ago, and we forgot how much physical abuse Ariel goes through in the film. So much so that she's like, I don't think I'd let my daughter watch this film. I wanted to talk you to you. You don't have to tell me nothing. I know why you don't call me up. I wanted to tell you myself. Oh, well, I know why you don't want to see me anymore. Hey, I'm not stupid. I'm not blind. It's McCormick, ain't it? You're just dying to screw McCormick, aren't you? Aren't you? You're so stupid. Stupid? You think I don't see you looking at him like some bitch in heat? You'd wrap those skinny legs around anybody, won't Shut you? Shut up! Oh! Is that what I get? Huh? I treated you decent. Shit. Hey, hey! Put that down! Don't even think about that. Yeah, the fight is pretty brutal, and Ariel calls Ren, and he comes and sees her. I'm sorry you have to see me like this. I'll be okay. Just, just sneak in at home. I'll be fine. I look okay? Yeah, I think I'll pull through. Thanks for coming for me. I don't understand. I mean, there's nothing to understand. It's, it's for taking on my father. No, 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 wait a minute. Wait, I got no beef with him. Wait, no, wait. This is my fight, you know? It's with the town. It's not with one guy. You don't get to turn my fight into some kind of a screw you to your old man. Hey, look. Uh, maybe, uh... Maybe, maybe you shouldn't try so hard to forget your brother. Or to try to make your father forget him, you know? It's not that easy. I know, I know. Can I still get the box? Huh? Give me the box.
think you might ever kiss me? also has to prepare for the town council meeting and he gets a great piece of information from Ariel, though we don't know exactly what it is until that night. Hi. Still hurt? Yeah. Good. Nervous? No. Uh-uh. No, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm nervous. I don't know what I'm going to say to the council. There's only the seven of them, though, right? Who else is going to be there? Everybody. Take a deep breath. You ready? What is it? Holy Bible? What? Oh, this is great. So with Ren, it's always one step forward, two steps back. And some folks decide to send a message to the devil incarnate, Ren McCormick. around here without people taking shots at now this is not the first time my business was off but people are taking business away from me you too and your aunt lulu's been getting some ugly phone calls and today your mother lost her job last month is that true what mr collins said he'd been hearing some things about you he thought maybe i ought to stay home and be a proper mother now what did you say i told him to shove it now damn it ethel this is serious there's other jobs where where shouldn't you call the police Oh, I don't know how much good it'll do. I'll get Jim Earl's house over here. Will you stop now? Will you stop? The next night at the town council, they try to quickly dismiss the dance proposal with a quick vote before Ren gets to make his case. But he then gets an unexpected ally from Vi. I think Mr. McCormick has a right to be heard. I just wanted to say a few words about this motion so that uh, you, w- you wouldn't think that we were encouraging destruction with this idea. From the oldest of times, people danced for a number of reasons. They danced in prayer, or so that their crops would be plentiful, or so their hunt would be good. And they danced to stay physically fit, and show their community spirit. And they danced to celebrate. 
And that that is the dancing that we're talking about. Yeah. Aren't we told? In, in Psalm 149, Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Let them praise his name in the dance. Amen. And it was King David. King David, who, who we read about in, in Samuel. And, and, and what did David do? What did David do? What did David do? David <laughs> danced before the Lord with all his might. Leaping, leaping and dancing before the Lord. Leaping and dancing. And Ecclesiastes assures us that there is a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to laugh and a time to weep. A time to mourn there is a time to dance. And there was a time for this law, but not anymore. See, this is our time to dance. It is our way of, of celebrating life. That's the way it was in the beginning. It's the way it's always been. That's the way it should be now. Now, this was a difficult scene for Kevin Bacon, so much so that the day he was supposed to film it, he broke out in hives because he was so nervous since it was by far the biggest scene in the film for him. So even though Ren makes a powerful case, his boss at the mill, Andy, lets him know that it didn't matter what Ren said at the meeting. Reverend Moore already had the votes in his pocket. However, Andy does divulge a potential way around the law, as his mill is technically outside the city lines of Beaumont. They could legally still have the dance at the mill, but Ren would still have to convince the reverend. In the meantime, Ariel and her father continue to clash. And I beheld and heard an angel fly through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And the angel was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Yes? I used to get such a kick out of watching you work up your sermons. And now? It's different. I see the stage, I see costumes. It's show business, isn't it? It's the only way I know to reach people's emotions. I haven't heard from you for a while. 
When was it? Thursday? I was angry, you were angry. I was not. Yes, you were. If you weren't, you would have asked me what was wrong. You knew. Ariel, I cannot let this dance happen. Ren McCormick made a lot of people stop and think. I object to that kind of music, and I think you know why. Because people fornicate to it. I never said that. That's what you told the church board. That was not meant for your ears. Well, when did my ears get old enough, Daddy? When did you stop protecting me? I'm no saint, you know. It is my duty to look after the spiritual growth of you. I'm young... not even a virgin. Don't you talk like that in here. Why not? Isn't this why I'm supposed to confess my sins to my preacher? In church! After Ariel's outburst, Reverend Moore is called outside as the townspeople are burning books from the local library. Finally, the Reverend has seen the light and realizes his proselytizing has done far more harm than good. The town has just gone too far and his words have fueled much of the fire. That night, Wren stops by Reverend Moore's house and they have a heart-to-heart. -heart. The Reverend discusses the death of his son and Wren discusses his father leaving. The two realize that they have much more in common than they originally thought. The Reverend decides to give a revised sermon at church that Sunday. I'm standing up here before you today with a very troubled heart. You see, my friends, I've always insisted on taking responsibility for your lives, but I'm really uh, like a first-time parent who makes mistakes and tries to learn from them. And like that parent, I find myself at that moment when I have to decide, do I hold on or do I trust you to yourselves? Let go and hope that you've understood at least some of my lessons. If we don't start trusting our children, how will they ever become trustworthy? I'm told that the senior class at the high school has got use of a warehouse in Basin for the purpose of putting on uh, a senior dance. Please join me to pray to the Lord to guide them in their endeavors. so it's a go and we get another montage of the students in town getting the mill ready for the big dance this montage song is the underrated track i'm free heaven helps a man from kenny loggins 
All right, at this point, you can kind of sort of guess what happens. And I will say definitely avoid the remake, as it's just lame and not worth your time. I'm not saying that the original Footloose is a groundbreaking cinematic masterpiece, but it's got an 80s charm and nostalgia that I personally adore. Plus, there's an edginess to the original film that you might not realize. And the final dance scenes are great. Who knew such dancing-oppressed teens were such world-class dancers in Beaumont? <laughs> Plus, you get a nice fight scene between Ren and Chuck, since there had to be some sort of retaliation for Chuck being a complete douchebag. Now, I believe the most underrated character in the film is actually Ariel's mom, Vi. She's just understated, but she's the rock in the family, and it's played beautifully by Diane Weiss. And as I've gotten older, her scenes are some of my favorites. The other three underrated characters are Rusty, Andy, the mill owner, and Woody, played by John Laughlin, who has a few great scenes, one in particular where he handles a few guys by himself that jump Wren outside the diner. And if you were wondering, the song Footloose was played three times in the film, the opening, then the closing scenes, and then at the bar. But originally, it was only supposed to be used once in the bar scene. However, the filmmakers realized the song was too good not to be used more than once, and of course, it became the centerpiece of the film. All right, now the songs. Again, I will get into a track-by-track -track analysis on the Growing Up Rock crossover episode, but here are some interesting notes about some of the songs. Ironically, the writing of Footloose, the screenplay, started actually before MTV debuted in 1981. Now, by the time the film was released in 1984, as we all know, MTV was huge, and Footloose's almost music video-like quality of the film was a perfect storm. The success of Flashdance of the year prior had to help with the success of Footloose as well. And unlike most of the films at the time, which were not traditional musicals, Dean Pitchford wrote songs for the scenes, meaning the song itself could essentially be the dialogue. The actors didn't have to say a word. For example, Kenny Loggins would be Kevin Bacon in his own sort of way, and simply from the song he performed to a scene. And Bonnie Tyre would be like Laurie Singer in Holding Out for a Hero, and so on. Only two songs were written before the film was shot. Footloose, the title track, and Somebody's Eyes. One was obviously used predominantly, and the other was more of a background song, as it turned out. Now, the release of the music video for the song Footloose came out a few weeks before the film was released, and during the sneak preview, there were hundreds of girls lined up to see the movie because they all loved the music video and wanted to see Kevin Bacon. The producers then knew at that point they had a big hit on their hands. Once the film was released, the soundtrack just went crazy. You couldn't turn on the radio or MTV for a long amount of time without hearing at least one song from the film played. It was an absolutely enormous hit. The other wonderful thing about Footloose and many of the soundtracks from the 80s is that there were original songs being written for specifically for the movie. And that is totally a lost art in today's filmmaking, and it's a shame. It sort of kind of ended with Dirty Dancing, maybe The Bodyguard, but even that had a cover in there. And today, it's pretty much playlist. If you look at Guardians of the Galaxy and films like that, they're just using old songs, which is fine, but I miss the days of a brand new soundtrack. That's why I love The Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, because they wrote original music just for that movie. All right, some fun facts. Herbert Ross asked Dean Pitchford to write a rap song for the film. And this horrified Pitchford because it came off more like Blondie's song Rapture and nothing great like Run DMC or what rap would evolve into in the late 80s. Amazingly enough, the rap song was in the first cut of the film and Ross actually liked it. After the screening with the producers, Craig Sedan uh, strongly told Ross he was embarrassed by the rap sequence and it would ultimately harm the film. It wasn't a natural progression in the film. So Ross took the feedback seriously and removed the song, thankfully. 
However, the good part about filming these rap sequences, some of the footage did end up in the montage scenes, like the motorcycle scene. There was also a fire sequence that was filmed where Ren, Ariel, Willard, and Rusty return from the club across city lines, and they try to report the fire, which happens to be near the mill where Ren works. We discover then, in a bit of foreshadowing, that the fire department couldn't cross over to put out the fire because of the city zoning. Of course, this would come into play later when Andy informs Ren about having to dance on his property. There was another deleted scene where Chuck gets into an argument with Ren, where Chuck ends up crashing his truck when attempting to hit Ren. There were also more sequences with Vi, Diane Weist, and her hairdresser where she could unwind a bit. The hairdresser would fit her in after hours and they'd drink beer and joke while she was getting her hair done. And this kind of showed that there was a bit of Ariel in Vi. There was a major disagreement between the director and the producers about when the film really ended. Herbert Ross felt once the kids got their dance, the film should end. However, the producers felt that that was only part of the ending, that the audiences actually needed to see a dance happen for the film to truly be a satisfying experience. So as with most films, there were test screenings. The audiences absolutely loved it. They were dancing in the aisles, all the way up to the slow-motion, subdued final dancing that Ross envisioned. But then it was like the air was taken out of the audience. Finally, after the poor test screenings, they realized they needed the ending to be changed. And thankfully they did because the movie needed that big bang of an ending. So if you if you don't aren't picturing what I said, so instead of when everyone kind of dances and does their own little shtick at the end to Footloose, it was supposed to only be like a very slow motion thing right when Ariel and Ren appear after the fight. And it just was like a dud. Like everything was, <laughs> it was a total letdown for the test audiences. So, they to create this additional ending, the barn needed to be recreated on a soundstage in Los Angeles, and you notice the hair lengths and hairstyles were a bit different for certain actors, because it had been months since the original filming had wrapped up. Also, many of the dances were different from the original prom guest, but nobody noticed or cared. I guess you could watch it and find out. So then, the test scores went through the roof after the reshoot, and amazingly, we may not be talking about the film today if it wasn't revised for the ending. And by the way, that slow motion ending wasn't totally thrown out. If you watch the ending credits, the slow motion callback between Ren and Ariel is included, and that works great. Now, I mentioned Jennifer Jason Lee was almost hired to play Ariel. There were many other actresses that auditioned, including Madonna, very early in her career, Daryl Handa, who kind of looks like Laurie Singer, ironically, and is also tall. You have Elizabeth McGovern, Melanie Griffith, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jamie Lee Curtis, Rosanna Arquette, Meg Tilly, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Heather Locklear, Meg Ryan, Jodie Foster, Phoebe Cates, Tatum O'Neill, Bridget Fonda, Lori Laughlin, Diane Lane, and Brooke Shield. Of all of them, I think Daryl Hannah would have made the most sense to me, but she took the role in Splash, and it was a perfect move for her, ultimately. All right, now it's time for you to go over to the Growing Up Rock podcast, download that episode, and listen to us talk about the Fulu soundtrack in depth. We have a lot of fun, and it's always a great time with Stephen Michael and Sonny Pooney. And I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. So as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, we have a special crossover show with the always terrific Growing Up Rock podcast, Sonny Pooney and Stephen Michael. And we're going to chat about the original Footless film on Damn Good Movie Memories, this, this particular podcast. But then, once you're done listening to this, you're going to go to the, the Grown Up Rock podcast, and you're going to hear us discuss the soundtrack specifically. So welcome back to the show, Stephen and Sonny. And I, I got to admit, all the credit goes to you guys for coming up for this terrific idea. So thank you, guys. 
Yeah, so this was all Steven's idea because this isn't, uh, it's one of my favorite soundtracks, but it's not actually one of my favorite movies of all time. Okay. Um, I rewatched it the other day, so we'll get my takes on it. Good. Um, but uh, no, this is all Steven, baby. And for me, this is definitely going to be grown up rock getting outside the comfort zone and stretching a little <laughs> bit, but I think it'll be fun because, hey, who doesn't like music overall? And certainly Grown Up Rock is part of uh, music. We just sort of cater to the harder uh, rocking side of music, but this this soundtrack has it all. So I thought it would be a great pairing and a great idea, and I'm glad you agreed to do it. Definitely, and I think this I think the seed was kind of planted when you guys did Rockstar, um, because that that's another typical type of movie that you know you had a good movie or you know a somewhat good movie depending on when you're what you're going with. You have a fun soundtrack, and so um, yeah, I think this was a perfect melding. I think we could do this probably more in the future. I think the only the only rule I have on damn good movie memories I have to own the film, otherwise it, you know it kind of limits what I can do. And I have a thousand movies, so I'm I'm good for the rest of my life. So we're good there. Uh, so I've gone through the history of the film. I've given you the fun facts, the majority of the plot. So really, now it's time to get some perspective uh, from two '80s movie fans who lived the era. So we're gonna start with Steven here. Uh, how old were you in 1980? for did you see this in the theater or was this cable or video or were you introduced to the soundtrack first how, how did you how did you find footloose okay first of all i was not uh made aware that math would be involved so <laughs> i'm gonna take a guess that i was probably 16 or 17 in 84 28 28 because 84 uh was my graduation year so 16, 17, somewhere in around there, 17, I think. And uh, no, I saw this in the theater because this was a popular movie at the time. And uh, funny is that the town I lived in wasn't a huge town, although it was a lot bigger than what's portrayed in Footloose. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there wasn't a ton of stuff to do. So you kind of cruised the malls on Fridays and Saturday nights and hung out with people and went and saw movies at the mall. So I'm sure that I saw this in the theater, and that's where I first uh, learned about Footloose and um, and the soundtrack itself. And how about you, Sonny? Yeah, so when this movie comes out, I'm 14. I had heard some of the songs and seen some of the movie clips on the videos on MTV, but I didn't see this movie till probably 88, 89, blockbuster rental, mm. uh, you know, date night type get a movie and stay at home type thing. Uh, I was too young, first of all, to go see this in the theater. And by the time I'm old enough to really go to movies by myself, this thing's out of the theater already. Okay. So you guys are both, you, you saw the movie before the soundtrack. I'm taking it. Yes. Okay. For me. Yeah. Yeah. I had heard some of the soundtrack, but not all of it. Like not I'd, all of it. Okay. Although there's like seven singles off this thing, really the only videos that played on MTV over and over was maybe three songs. Right. True. True. Okay. So before we actually get into the movie, I'm just going to give you a either or a question and who you prefer. Uh, so we'll start with Sonny. Did you prefer Ren or Willard? So Kevin Bacon or Sean Penn or not Sean Penn, Chris Penn, his brother. In the movie, I preferred Ren. Okay. I uh, associate myself more to Willard. Okay. <laughs> and what about you, Steven? A hundred percent exactly what Sonny said. So I would like to think that I'm Ren, but I think anybody that knows me knows I'm about as far from Ren as possible. So I'm definitely a Willard person, but yeah, I, I was more into the cool kid, uh, Ren in the movie. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I I have to admit I identified more with with Ren than than Willard. But I think the the under the um, underrated character was actually the uh, the third friend Woody, uh, who was played by John Laughlin. He he's got some great lines. He ends up beating up a couple guys on his own to kind of save Ren from uh, getting beat up when he was kind of taken from behind and put in, into the phone booth near the the diner. And so I I really liked those side characters because Ren needed someone to kind of help him out with the locals. Um, okay, so the next one is um, we'll start with Steven. Did you like Ariel or Rusty better? So Laurie Singer or, or a very young Sarah Jessica Parker? No, I'm definitely all over Laurie Singer. <laughs> 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 I think she had a lot of daddy issues, obviously. But oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, Rusty's a little bit too reserved for me. So <laughs> definitely I would have uh, uh, latched on to Laurie Singer much quicker. Go ahead, Sonny. Can I pick Vi? Well, absolutely. Uh, I guess I'll pick Vi. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I have uh, labeled uh, Sarah Jessica Parker as Butterface, so <laughs> I'm uh, <laughs> I'm more on the aerial side. It's funny when she was younger. I, I thought she was a lot cuter when she was younger. I don't know why. Yes. Yeah, yes, a hundred percent. I agree. Yeah, when she was. Did you guys ever see Square Pegs? The TV show? Mm, not ringing any bells with me. Okay, no, it, not with me either kind of a cult classic i think it was only on for one season but that was what she was on prior to um before because photos was kind of her first major movie she almost wasn't in the film because um you know there was travel issues and things like that but i think she's a she's a key character in this she's she's really cute i think she's the she'd be a great friend especially back then but yeah i mean ariel was supposed to be the star she almost had a daryl hannah look of sorts mm -hmm. Who was, uh, I, from what I understand, Daryl Hannah was actually considered for this role, but ended up doing Splash instead. Exactly, exactly. So good. See, I don't even need to do the fun facts when we got Stephen and Sonny here. So, well, didn't they both end up in a, a man with one red shoe too? That's a good point. Um, I don't think, I don't think Daryl Hannah's in that one. Uh, Daryl Hannah wasn't in that movie that I remember. I like that movie. Yeah, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. I like that movie too. And Jim Belushi. We just, yeah. Sonny and I just discussed about last night, not too long ago. So that was yep. good. Jim Belushi was great in uh, The Man with One Red Shoe. He is. He's an underrated actor. We're kind of, we're kind of, uh, digressive, but no, he's, he's great. He's very underrated. And unfortunately he just, he's in the shadow of, of his incredibly talented brother. So even though the, the plot I think is very far fetched, it is based on a real story from uh the late 70s about a town in oklahoma which actually lifted their 80 year old ban on dancing <laughs> and so uh you know steven you said you kind of grew up in a small town i don't believe it was this conservative but did you kind of see where this film was coming from because i think sunny and i you know growing up in the bay area in california this seems so foreign to us like th this seems ridiculous how, how, how did you feel about that steven yeah, no, I bought into this uh, 100% because I knew there were uh, small towns that existed. So my town wasn't as small as this, but I grew up in the Bible Belt. Mm. So growing up in the Bible Belt, there were often times where we would walk through the malls and maybe had a concert T-shirt on or uh, a pair of studs back in that day around your wrist or something. And you know, you would be accosted by people that were trying to tell you you needed to be saved and, and things like that. So it was not at all far-fetched for me. Uh, myself and my friends, we all bought into that because uh, surrounding our town are many other smaller towns. 
And so it's very much like that. I don't know to the extent of, you know, <laughs> would they have been arrested for playing music or something like that? That much I don't know. But, yeah, I, I bought into it 100 percent. Well, especially during the 80s, there always seemed to be the 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 sit the you know the satanic panic and and things like yeah. that. And uh, yeah, it's funny because I I just even in the 90s and the 2000s, I remember going to shows and you'd see people you know picketing, not that many, but still enough. And that's here in the Bay Area, so I can only imagine how it was uh, in the South. How about how about you, Sonny? Did that that plot seem far fetched, or did you buy into it? Oh, it, the plot is ridiculous. <laughs> like you can you can find weed. You can find cigarettes. You can go across a straight a state line and buy beer when you're 17 years old, but you can't dance. Like beyond ridiculous. <laughs> so, so did, but that didn't affect your enjoyment of the movie. So, actually, let's get into that. You can talk about. It. Did you do you actually enjoy this movie at all, Sonny? Uh, there's parts of it I enjoy. I thought Kevin Bacon. There's some. There's a couple of parts where you can tell the acting chops. Like, oh my god, this guy's going to be a big, big star. Like. You know, when he's talking about his dad on the bed, I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, like this guy can be in any movie after this. And now, you know, we already know what he became, but there's no doubt. But the whole dancing thing in the abandoned warehouse like that's a little, you know, I can get on the tractor, you know, chicken thingy. I OK, I got that part. <laughs> but the whole like weird, I don't know what is freestyle dancing like I like dancing. That's like very, I don't know, regimented. Not mm-hmm. just kind of free flowing through you and stuff just happens. Like, so there's parts of the movie I'm just like, it's really tough to watch. And then there's parts of the movie I really enjoy. Okay. Steven, how, how about you? Um, did you, did you, do you enjoy the movie? Do you, did you enjoy it better when you first saw it, you know, back in the day or does it still hold up for you? You know, let me just say this. So Sonny doesn't buy into this stuff yet at midnight. On the Monsters of Rock cruise, there was Sonny <laughs> dancing up and down the, you know, cabin uh, hallway to this song on Footloose. So, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I buy Sonny's deal with that. Sonny's quite a good dancer. You should, uh, you should catch him sometime. He's amazing. But, well, I believe it. He's a huge <laughs> Prince fan. So I, I don't know he couldn't be. <laughs> See, there's nothing like seeing Sonny Pooney moonwalk. I'm telling you right now, <laughs> unbelievable. But no, uh, yeah, you know what? I did enjoy this movie when I saw it, and uh, it's not so bad now. I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of cheese involved with the movie, much more now than back in '84. But you know, strip away everything. This movie is sort of there's a there's a story about morality in this movie, and there's also it's kind of the basic movie, right? The hero. Uh, overcomes uh, countless hurdles to get the girl and become the hero in the end. You know, I mean, it's really no different than a lot of these type stories uh, uh, over time. So I, you know, I enjoyed it. It was a, it was good uh, feel good type movie, I guess. And what's interesting, this rewatching, I remember um, some of my coworkers, we'd have movie Friday and we'd just turn on the TV and, and put on whatever. And, and a couple of years ago, we turned on Footloose and we always remembered it, as you kind of said, a feel good, happy go lucky thing. But there was actually a lot of drama, and a lot of seriousness and mostly coming from Ariel's character. I mean, she gets hit by a couple different guys. And I remember my coworker saying, I don't know if I want my daughter to see this because, um, 
you know, she's just she's just kind of this lost lost girl. How did you guys feel about the Ariel character? And actually, how did you feel about John Lithgow's character? Because if you want to talk about great actors, I think he kind of steals the show often. And we'll, we'll start with Sonny on this. Uh, I thought Lithgow stole the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Lithgow was the quintessential professional actor that knew what the hell he was doing. There was a couple of times where I'm like, all right, dude, calm down. It's just music. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So um, he did an outstanding job. Ariel's interesting, right? Because she almost dies in the car. She stands mm-hmm. in front of a train. She's getting beat up by a couple of folks. And then there's this piece of when Lithgow says something, though, she completely bows down. So she wants to be like part rebel, but then she's not really a rebel against her own parents out front. She's doing it kind of behind the scenes. Right. So it's um, it's an interesting character. But, yeah, when you go back and look at it as an r- adult, you're like. Ariel's got some problems. She's a little bit bipolar and she's got mm-hmm. a death wish. And that's a little, that's a little crazy. Yeah, definitely. How about, how about you, Steven? Yeah, I agree with Sonny's assessment. I mean, I think, I think most, uh, uh, young girls don't want to disappoint their dad. If they have any kind of relationship with their parents, they usually don't want to disappoint their daddy. And so I got that from her every time she would almost look down at the floor whenever she did something disappointing to live out, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Coming home late or playing music uh, at the uh, the drive up, drive up uh, restaurant. Uh, she would look down at the floor when she was speaking to him. So she, she felt like she disappointed him, but then there's this uh, high adrenaline uh, <laughs> death wish kind of crazy girl, uh, uh, image that she portrayed often. So, uh, it was definitely a, a sort of yin and yang character. Uh, and I think she played it great. I think she did a really good job, but a lot of these movies that have these younger actors or no, I'll call them no name actors at the time, they're always sort of anchored by that one, uh, you know, brilliant actor lift out for this movie was one. I think Diane Reese was also another one. Right. Uh, that sort of anchored the movie, right? And I'm glad you brought up Diane Weiss. I almost thought she was underused because he, he actually mm-hmm. the Ariel character barely spoke to her that much. I mean, you would think after having such an issue with her father, the natural go to would be her mom, but mm-hmm. it's it's not there. And so I how did you guys feel about that, uh, Sonny? Yeah, it felt like maybe she was, but maybe that stuff landed on the cutting room floor. Right? Yeah, that's possible. Because the way she shows up in the end when she basically shuts down Lithgow, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, and she shuts down one of her friends at the meeting, uh, you would see that there's much power there, but that power wasn't really shown the rest of the film. So I'm thinking some of that stuff got cut out. Yeah. How about you, Steven? Yeah, I agree with that. I think a lot of, uh, you know, this is might sound a bit weird, but I think a lot of, uh, the relationship that was going on between Ariel and, uh, the mom was done in just like looks you could tell oftentimes she would give that look whether it was uh disappointment lift out and uh how he kind of um you know he smacked her once and just mm-hmm. uh, uh enforced the law and just so she gave there were she did she said a lot with her looks uh more so than her words but yeah at the end she shows up she gives the corsage that was a a very um, uh, emotional moment between the two of them uh, towards the end, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, we kind of mentioned the plot holes, how it, there is some definite cheese to this movie. I think the biggest plot hole being at the very end, not to spoil anything, but look, most people have seen this movie, is they went from very being very apprehensive dancers to being world class dancers in literal over you know five minutes. So <laughs> that to me was always that cracked me up as a kid. What are some of your favorite scenes? What are some of your most r- ridiculous scenes? Uh, what did you get uh, from your last viewing? We'll start with Steven. Uh, Well, one thing I enjoyed speaking of towards the end where they're all showing up as uh, fantastic dancers is I like the uh, all out brawl and fight that Ren McCormick gets into out in the parking lot. Yes. And then he and then he comes down the stairs and ready to dance. He ain't got a mark on him. (laughs) He ain't got a mark on his face. Cleans up well. (laughs) Cleans up real well. Apparently that was pretty funny. Uh, You know, I like. um, uh, the scene where they're um, they smuggled in uh, certain things, and uh, the best they had was like, uh, oh, smuggled tapes. That's what she called it. She had Ariel had the smuggled cassette tapes uh, to play at the uh, restaurant, and the yes. best she had was Shalimar dancing yeah. in the sheets. Come on, <laughs> now that's <laughs> which, which, which turned into a music video basically at the time. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty funny. Uh, and just just some different things. Uh, my favorite part was when they go to this secret place uh, where they were writing lyrics and poems and mm. all this stuff all over the walls and stuff. And uh, Ren McCormick looks up and he says, uh, you know, they're reading different lyrics. And he says, uh, here it says, you pulled the trigger of my love gun. <laughs> Who wrote that? No, I'm just kidding. I totally made that part up, sort of. But Should have been in there. It should have been in there. Come on. Perfect. Well, that's a good lead into Sonny. So, Sonny, what are, what are some of your, your favorite scenes? And, and definitely, what are your favorite ridiculous scenes? Yeah, some of my favorite scenes and ridiculous uh, are probably this, uh, <laughs> the same for me. How did Ren become Bruce Lee at the end? <laughs> well, he's got that the kick that he shot. does when he comes out, right? It's like all the, you had to have Woody protect your ass twice. Yep. And then all of a sudden, you became Bruce Lee. Like, I, I didn't get that. Um, love the scene, uh, Sarah, Jessica Parker, Rusty's character is dancing with that guy. And it's like, mm. I came with that girl. What doesn't look like you're leaving with her. You yeah. know that I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, this whole, you know, when kids dance together, they get sexually irresponsible. I'll tell you, I have three girls. I, I want to see them dancing on the floor because they could be in rooms mm-hmm. and you don't have a clue what the hell's going on. So True. I think dancing is probably the less of that. Yep. I loved the, do you like men at work? How about the police? It was very much a Laurel and Hardy <laughs> who's on first type of uh, thing. And they didn't really play off that too much. They almost did it in passing because it was in the car. Yeah. Right. So you had to really listen for that. And I thought that was one of the funnier scenes in the movie. If they would have went along with that a little bit, but it, you know, ran and Willard are just starting their friendship. So, yeah. um, yeah, and yeah, then the, he says, do you like the police? And then I'll say, yeah, there's one right behind you. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. When it gets yeah. pulled over. Yep. Yeah. And then the last scene is very Grease-esque, right? It's all of a sudden everybody's doing like, you know, or at the end of Hitch, everybody at the wedding is doing their own dance and everybody gets their two minutes or whatever. I I don't know where all that came from, but I guess you have to end the movie somehow. Yeah. 
One thing that always stood out that was almost like a side character was, I think, Ren's car, his little Volkswagen bug, which I always liked. <laughs> so we're kind of going to divert a little bit from the movie. I was just curious because it came up to me. What were your guys' first cars that you, at least the car you had in high school? So, Stephen, what, what was the car you drove in high school? Okay, first of all, I didn't, I wasn't uh, one of those kids. I didn't get to drive a, a car in high school. Okay. So, <laughs> So I always rode with a buddy of mine, but my first car just out of high school, because I got a car when I graduated, uh, not as a present, but kind of as a need-your-own car because you're going to college and getting a job now type thing. Right. But I had a Dodge Colt, mm. and I don't know, it was it was a small four-door Dodge Colt, and the cool thing about this car is that it had one of those blue jean roofs. You know what I mean? Like blue yeah. jean fabric on the roof. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's something they made back then. It's weird, but that's what I remember about that car. Well, when I start to do the video podcast, I will put in pictures of the blue jean cold. <laughs> but uh, Sonny, did you, did you have a car in high school? I didn't get to drive in high school because I didn't get to take driver's ed until my second semester in high school because I graduated when I was 16. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, my first car out of high school was a hand-me-down red Nissan Sentra hatchback. Oh, nice. It was oh, my mom's yeah. car, and it got handed down to me as she got her new Chevy Corsica, whatever she had. Um, for a while, we had two Nissans, but I, I drove that Nissan uh, for quite a while. Nice. That's, that's hilarious. I have, I've never heard this uh, before, but I, I actually, my second car was a red uh nissan Sentra hatchback <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it ended up going to him i don't know <laughs> that's true they sent it they shipped it to george <laughs> that's awesome i see we, we learned something new and this is why you guys were meant to be together i've told this story uh on other podcasts but my and my parents always get a kick out of this so i i did drive a car in high school but it was a hand-me-down it was the the family truck service a 1985 Dodge Caravan, which, of course, my friends all love because you could fit 10 people in it and we could go to the beach and we could, you know, I could drive all the drunks around. <laughs> but the, the thing about this car, it was a stick shift. Can you imagine a Dodge Caravan with wow. a, yeah. a four engine stick shift? And if you were on any sort of hill, uh, you took your life in your hands. I'll never forget my mom with my sister and I in the streets of San Francisco at the top of a hill and it stalled and it started to roll back. And I think my sister thought we were going to die. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I learned very quickly how to pop a clutch and, and things like that. So yeah, that's, uh, we all have our, our, uh, <laughs> across the fair when it comes to cars. Wow. Uh, I will end it on this. Did you guys see the remake in 2011? And we'll start with, uh, with Steven. Uh, I did see, I don't know when I saw it, but yes, I did see the remake. Uh, I don't think I saw, I, uh, I did not see it when it first came out. I saw it a few years after it came out. Uh, but just uh, backing up one minute, the one thing that I wanted to point out about the original movie that sure. I noticed, because I just watched it, is that there is zero diversity in this movie in 1984, like zero, I, I was, I was kind of laughing about that because there's just, there's zero, there's no, no, not even a, like a foreign kid or no, it's true. like zero, nothing. And uh, that would never happen today. But. No, no. But again, it, depending what town they grew up in, that could, yeah. that could actually happen. But you're right. Because you think about at the end scene, 
they're breakdancing. They're doing all sorts of things. So yeah. where are they getting that from if they had no MTV or anything? But yeah, you're totally right. It is very, uh, for lack of a better term, whitewashed, you know. And, and it is Utah, so yeah, uh, yep. whatever. But, yeah. Uh, I just thought it'd be funny to point that out. No, totally. And so did you enjoy the remake at all? Um, they were, from what I remember of the remake, it was pretty close to the best, right? It was fairly similar. They didn't really... Did they vary much from the actual story? Uh, well, they went country. I didn't see it because I hate remakes of movies that I love, so I didn't bother. But I know a lot of people, it got panned because it was basically just a retread with country music. So Yeah, uh, so, yeah. and it was it was fairly memorable to me, so there you go. I just I think I remember it being fairly close to what the original was, but maybe I'm wrong. Okay, how about you, Sonny? Yeah, normally I don't uh, mind remakes. I actually enjoy them because, you know, it kind of puts you back to where you first saw the original and you can kind of compare and uh, you get an idea of where the storyline changed, blah, blah, blah. For this movie, I went and looked at the soundtrack first, saw it was all country, hard pass. <laughs> Didn't even give it two seconds worth of a watch. Not ever going to watch it. There was not hard pass. No brutal from uh, from Sonny <laughs> Pooney. Okay, so we'll 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 do your final thoughts. We'll start with Sonny again. Like, would you recommend this movie, um, or would you recommend the soundtrack over this? But and we will definitely just a reminder. We're going to get into the specific soundtrack track by track on Grown Up Rock. But you know, just top top level. Would you would you recommend this movie and soundtrack for people? Yeah, I would say the soundtrack is an absolute recommend. Recommend mm-hmm. that's okay. that's done. Mm-hmm. Um. Would I recommend this movie? Yes, to folks who uh, maybe grew up in that time frame and either hadn't seen the movie in a long time or never saw the movie. You should see the movie because I think you'll connect to a lot of the things that were happening kind of in the 80s and that kind of feel-good type thing. I can't recommend this to teenage girls. Like, I don't mm. think, I don't know if this is a movie that my teenagers should watch today. And mm-hmm. I don't know if the remake kind of takes some of that stuff out to where you don't have to worry about it because I never saw it. But, uh, yeah, I'd recommend it to like my, you know, I'd rec- if Steven hadn't seen it, I'm like, hey, you, Jen, should probably go see that movie because it's part of your life. You just don't know it. Right. How about you, Steven? Yeah, I'd recommend the movie. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with it in any way, shape or form. It was it was a feel good movie when it came out. It's aged pretty well it's a bit cheesy uh at times but it's what isn't back in 1984 you know mm-hmm. uh and so i have no problem recommending the movie and the soundtrack yeah as a definite i mean the soundtrack has a wide variety of stuff on it uh and it's just some well-written songs so i have no problem recommending that to people as well so just as one more curveball which one <laughs> which movie would you prefer footloose or flashdance We'll start with Steven. Well, that's that's a, a perfect comparison because really they are two. Uh, I, I don't know what time uh, Flashdance came out, but a year prior, a, a year prior, a, a year prior. So uh, I'm sure they were building off of the success of Flashdance uh, with this movie, but they're very similar. And I haven't seen Flashdance in forever, and I watched Footloose this morning, so it's kind of hard. Uh, to say which one I would recommend, but honestly, I'd recommend them both. Okay. I know I saw Flashdance when it came out and enjoyed that movie as well. Back back then. Back then. So. How about you, Sonny? Uh, I would recommend Flashdance for two reasons. One, it's a better movie. Mm. And second, being a guy, 
Jennifer Beals <laughs> and Cynthia Rhodes versus Lori Singer and Sarah Jessica Parker. And that's not even close. <laughs> Though the final dance for Flashdance is not Jennifer Beals. It's a, it's yeah. a double. And one of them is a guy in a wig. <laughs> so <laughs> be careful. That, that was Sonny Pony. <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> Driving up in the Nissan. So yeah, that's yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys, for doing this. Thank you, Stephen, for coming up with this idea. And again, we're not done. Like once you end this episode, you're gonna go over to Grown Up Rock and you're gonna listen to what how we feel about the soundtrack. So again, thank you so much, guys, for for joining me on this episode. Yeah, and just one more quick one. If you are listening to Damn Good Movie, uh, movie Memories on the day it releases. The Grown Up Rock episode of Footloose will be released on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, So come on over to the Grown Up Rock podcast and check out part two, the soundtrack portion. Absolutely. And I I have a feeling we're going to probably be doing this more over the years if if our our schedules meet and our movie tastes meet. So that's that's great. And again, you guys are always on the show, even for just without the soundtrack. we, We talk movies all the time, which is great. So thank you again, guys. Yeah, always a good time. I drink better than I dance too. So <laughs> I don't dance at all. So there you go. <laughs> Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on thatmetalstation.com. <laughs>